Okay, so we're going through this series on the sanctuary and the service. And so what we'll do today is try to cover the rest of the items here in the, in the sanctuary. And then we'll talk about the service itself. Uh, little nuances in the rubric or uh, new things such as kneeling and things like that, which we'll talk about uh, together. But uh, last week we talked about the cross, the crucifix. And all of the features of that, um, one of the members pointed out to me one other thing, which was his knees, which are bleeding. And that's also a historical depiction of when Jesus uh, fell. So he's carrying his cross and under the weight, after losing all of his energy, uh, all of his blood, he, he falls. And that's when Simon of Cyrene uh, comes and picks up the cross and carries it for him. So that was another, th- another little detail that I, I, I didn't mention. But you have all of the wounds of Christ, you have the crown of thorns, you even have the knees uh, bloodied there as well. Um, on top of the, the uh, sign above the cross, the bent cross, and even his head leaning to uh, his right, which is signifying his conversation with the thief on the cross uh, who is in paradise with him. Yes? This one uh, was made in Italy. So we purchased it from Idonali, which is a, a church supply company, but they had it manufactured in Italy. So it was hand carved and they made it and then shipped it over. So <clears throat> yeah, it's very, it's very beautiful. I know that the original crucifix that Zion had was when they were in Pine Hills, and the cross was purchased from Gotha, Germany. And it was made in Gotha, which is where Zion was originally from. And they made that crucifix and they sent it here. And I think they either didn't want to display it or never put it up uh, when we were in the old building. They didn't have room to store it. They yeah, they, yeah. They bought it in Pine Hills, but when they moved back to Gotha, they uh, didn't have room to store it. Or they did store it, but they said we're never going to use it. Yeah, yeah. I heard some some different stories too. What, one of the problems was that in the storage there was some leak or something, and the actual cross was being damaged, so that had to be restored. The corpus was intact. But if you want to see that original crucifix that Zion made, and that's pretty old and from Gotha, uh, you can go to Christ the King Lutheran Church. If you walk in, uh, it will be to the left. So I think on the lectern side, that, that's, that, that's where they have. So on the very no, left. No, it's on the pulpit side. They get the pulpit on that Oh, side. on the other side. Okay, so then it's on the pulpit side of, of their church. But on the left when you come in, that's where you can see it. So, yeah, we talked about the crucifix, the significance of it, how it's the central and most prominent piece of artwork in the sanctuary. Uh, a couple other th- things before we start talking about the baptismal font and the lectern and things like this are the windows themselves and... The arches. So what you see is you see arches all throughout. Uh, All of the windows have arches pointing. And what they are are arrows pointing upward, right? Even the the pitch of the roof is the same way. It's it's not wide, but it's high. It's tall. Uh, Same thing with these trusses. They're all pointing upward in this way. It's, It's a beautiful thing. And 
really, the, the point is, is that as you're driving by or as you see it from the outside, it's all having, it's sending a message. There's something to look up to, up, 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 up. Uh, that our eyes, we've set our eyes on things above, right, as opposed to things in this world. So as you come through, you see that in the doors, and as you come in, and then you're greeted with uh, Christ on the cross, right? So that, that's what the point of all of these arched windows are, uh, leading so that everyone would be able to see the Lord himself and hear his word. Um, so that's the point of that. Now, regarding the baptismal font, another feature is that it's in the center. Some churches will put them in the narthex. We just, I talked about this last time, that it'll be in the narthex as an entrance to the church. And that's fine, too. I think over the years, I don't know when exactly, but over the years, um, it became a feature to put them in the center of, of the church, uh, showing the centrality of baptism. So that the way we speak of baptism is not something that happened in the past, but it's an ongoing and present reality, something that we, we see and remember daily. This is how Luther spoke of it. There's that hymn, uh, I am baptized into Christ. Right? Uh, God's own child, I, I gladly say, I am baptized into Christ. He, because I could not pay it, uh, paid my full redemption price. Uh, so on and so forth. The point there is that the language and the tense of that is not that I was baptized, but rather that I am baptized. And so we would draw a connection between baptism and marriage. Right? So if somebody says, are you married? And you say, or, were you married? Uh, I was married in 2014. Well, it gives the implication that now you're not. But rather, this did happen in 2014, but it's an, it, it affects me right now. And every single day, and it will affect me until the day I die. So that I don't say I was married, but I am married. I, I am currently. It, and it will be that way until God separates us according to his good and holy will. Until death us do part. In the same way, this happens with baptism. We don't say I was baptized. Like this was a, a minor sort of thing that came, uh, you know, I, I, I started in the church and I, I just forget it now. Rather, I am baptized this, this relationship with God, uh, this unity with God happens in your baptism. It begins there, and it doesn't end there. So we don't look at baptism like an ordinance or something that you just have to check off the list and say, okay, I've done it, and that's my entrance into the church. Rather, it is an ongoing, present reality so that you are constantly remembering your baptism. So placing it in the center here teaches that. It's not bad to place it in the back. It's not bad to place it in the front, any of this. Uh, but I'm, I'm just simply telling you that this is why we've chosen to put this in the center. Uh, that it would be in the center of the cruciform ground plan, but also in the center of, of the sanctuary, so that you can't even come to communion without bumping into this uh, <laughs> and being reminded of it. Uh, one of the other things we do is that we'll fill it with water so that it's a reminder of baptism. It's not that this water is holy or it's different. It's from the tap, just like baptismal water is. It's not from the Jordan, nothing special about it. But we keep the baptismal font full because uh, we're, it's a reminder. Uh, we don't want to have it empty, and it's a reminder. What people do, we'll talk about this when we get to the, uh, to the service itself, is a custom that people do is they'll put their hand in the baptismal font 
and make the sign of the cross on themselves. Uh, so they wet their forehead and remind themselves, hey, I was baptized. Uh, and nothing special about it doesn't give you special powers, none of this. It's simply a reminder, right? So that, that's the point here. What is the, what is the point of the crucifix? Well, it's a reminder. It's a symbol. It is teaching you. Right? Symbols are good. I know as Lutherans, we're, we're very against calling the Lord's Supper and baptism symbols. They're not symbols. They are the thing that the Lord is giving to us. But that doesn't mean symbols are bad. There are things that are symbolic. And this is the point. So as Lutherans, we have to recognize, look, there is the word and what the Lord says. Uh, but there are, there are also things like symbols that we ought to learn about and um, that, that are helpful for, for inducing piety and reverence in the church. And so one of those symbols is the baptismal font. Could we have a little, I don't know, a, a, a plastic bowl here? Yeah, we could. It's just as efficacious and just as good. But when you look at this, you say, wow, they put a lot of thought and time into this, and they put their first fruits into this, and uh, they, that must mean a lot to them. In fact, this week, no, no, not this week, last week, there were a couple of people here visiting, um, not on Sunday, but during the week, and they just wanted to see the sanctuary. It's uh, in-laws of a member, and so they wanted to see the sanctuary, and they saw it, and they were Anglican, so they came from, uh, they were also from England, and they saw, uh, you know, they see churches over there, they're breathtaking, they're like 800 years old. Um, it's, it's unbelievable. But they came here and they said, they don't know anything about the Lutheran church. They didn't even know about the Reformation. They didn't know about Luther, nothing. And I was like, we made you. <laughs> you guys came from us. We're the original ones. But anyway, so the Anglicans are, are talking and they're looking around and then they said, you guys put a lot of thought into this. They didn't know what any of it meant. They didn't know anything around here. And they just said, you could tell you've put a lot of thought into this. But they said it in a British accent, which was, which was cooler. But um, <laughs> so, so anyway, but it, it's very obvious that, look, there's something central about this. So you can't walk in here and say, well, does baptism matter to you guys? Well, of course it does. Boom, it's right in the center. Does Jesus matter? Yes, of course it does. These are symbols pointing to that. Uh, okay, a few things on the baptismal font. You will see that it is in the shape of an octagon. And that is showing two things. One is that uh, in 1 Peter 3, it talks about baptism and the flood. So it talks about the flood. Let me just read it to you. This will be better. 1 Peter chapter 3. So it's talking about Christ suffered once for sins, for the righteous, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, a few people, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So this is where, uh, this is part of the reason the baptismal fonts have been formed in the shape of an octagon to remind people of the eight, Noah and his family, eight who were saved through the flood. And then here in this flood, uh, you are saved. The, the few of us are saved through this. Uh, also, another reference to the number eight is on the, it's eight is the first day of the week. So you have seven days in the week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, seven days. Eight days is Sunday, and you start over again. Uh, Jesus resurrected on the eighth day, right? Starting from one day, you count eight days later, he resurrected on the first day of the week. That's that Sunday. Also, uh, children in the Old Testament were uh, circumcised on the, uh, at eight days old. Jesus was circumcised at eight days. And then Colossians, Paul talks about baptism replacing circumcision. So there's this eighth day, so that there's the seven days of creation, and then on the eighth day the Lord resurrects, and this is a new creation, right? A, a new beginning, a new start. So when we talk about this eight, this is a new start to life. Uh, you started life one way, the old way, which was in sin, conceived in sin, brought forth in iniquity. And then here you start the new week, the new day, the new creation. It's the eighth day, and this is another symbol of that. So it's really quite a beautiful thing, that, the imagery of that. Also at the very bottom, you could see this. So there's eight pillars there. But at the very bottom, there are three uh, steps going up there, uh, up to the font. And uh, that, that's a symbol that we're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, also, three steps here, right? That we're gathering in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, we'll talk more about that too. But on top of the font, what did you guys see or notice? No, on, on this font. Yes, yes. So you have the Alpha and the Omega. So the Alpha on this left side and then the Omega on the right side. That, that is the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. So Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, so on and so forth. Uh, then Omega is the final the, the final letter. This is coming from Jesus' words himself. So in Revelation 1.8, uh, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. So this is a reference and a reminder of Christ, that we are joined to Christ, the, who is the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who, who is, who was, and who is to come. Also, Revelation 22 and this is probably the most beautiful uh, connection here. Revelation 22, verse 13 says, Jesus again says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. So that is a reminder of Revelation 22. So um, remember in Revelation 7, who are these who are coming out of the great tribulation? They are those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb 
and they were made white and clean there. In this way, we're, we're drawing the connection to say, when does this washing happen? When, do, when is the, the man's sin uh, covered in the blood of Christ and taken away from him, covered in his righteousness? Well, this happens in your baptism. So that's where, so Christ says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Blessed are those who wash their robes. And they will then what? Be permitted to enter into uh, the gates of the city. So again, this is another reference to uh, the entrance into the church, but also into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of God. Um, Also, Revelation 21, verse 6. It says, And he who was seated on the throne, that is Christ, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done, or it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's beautiful. And to, to see that connection, that when the scriptures say Alpha and Omega, and it, it's Jesus who says this, we've ins, you know, inscribed this, engraved it into our baptismal font as a reminder of that. And almost every single time he mentions Alpha and Omega in the scriptures, it is connected to a washing, right? Uh, of, of, of being you know, adopted into the family of God, uh, being his son, uh, having your wa- robes washed in the, in the blood of the Lamb. Um, one other text, Isaiah 44. <clears throat> okay, but now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's. Uh, to say that I, I'm... It's on my hand. It is engraved. I belong to, to the Lord. And, uh, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no other God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. So, again, the, the connection here is when the scriptures speak of, of God, being, God himself being the beginning and the end, the first and the last, there is always a connection to a washing and a cleaning. And, a, and, and that. so that's the... That's the significance of the Alpha and the Omega there. Um, it's also the reality that Jesus is, is eternal. That this is not something, that this is something that the Lord himself does for us and not something we're doing for God. Um, so that uh, uh, it, it is, 
Did, did Noah um, do something for God when he didn't drown in the flood? No. No, God, in fact, did something for him. That's why he didn't drown in the flood. It was God's doing. He preserved him. In the same way, are we doing something for God in, our, in this flood of our baptism? No. This is something that God has done for us. He has, he has rescued us. It's passive. He is active. We're the passive ones receiving this. So that's, that's the uh, teaching there. Um, let's move next to the, let's see. Yeah, let's talk about the lectern. So on the lectern, we see, actually, what do you see? Sorry? Four letters, yes? Okay, you see four letters. Uh, and the way to read them is VDMA. Uh, VDMA, left to right. Uh, you also see four pillars there. It's made up of four pillars and then the, the top part. Um, well, the four pillars are a, a reminder and a sign symbolizing the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A lot of lecterns will have this too. They will have either four pillars or the actual faces of the evangelists on there. Uh, that they, This is unique in, in this way that these are the very recorded words of uh, Christ himself. All scripture is breathed out by God, yes. But we have in the Gospels not the word of God through a prophet or through a burning bush, but the word of God from himself into man's ear. And so we have that recorded in the four Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So those four pillars are a symbol of that. And then we have the VDMA and then a cross uh, joining them all together. What does that mean? Yes. Well, not Jeff, actually. I know Jeff knows it because he helped me do this. So. <laughs> oh, Carla. Oh, uh, yes, very good. Yes, in Latin. Yeah, uh, it, it means the word of the Lord endures forever. So, verbum, which is like a verb, the verbum, domini, so to dominate, or dominoes or something, it's uh, Lord. Manet is to remain, uh, something that, that remains, or mantener in Spanish. And then eternum, um, it's A-E, but it makes the kind of E-ish sound. Eternity. So the word of the Lord endures forever. Where do we get that from, and why do we say it? And why is it there? Yeah. Yeah, though, though heaven and earth shall pass away, the word of the Lord endures forever. Uh, also look at 1 Peter 1. Okay, I'll start at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for, here it is, and it's a quotation, um, for all, this is a quotation from Isaiah 40, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then he says, and this word 
is the good news that was preached to you. So that's, that's where we're getting that from. Uh, we're getting it from Isaiah chapter 40. Again, First uh, Peter, as it's uh, quoted there, the word of the Lord endures forever. Uh, also, I'm, I'm going to talk more about that in a little bit, but I'm going to ask you something else about this. What's different about that symbol and the other symbols uh, that you see up front here? I, yeah, Darlene had it. Yes. Yeah, the others are kind of reliefs, right? They, they stick out. But this one is engraved into it. And there's some meaning behind that too. So remember when Job said, look, I know that my Redeemer lives. Uh, in, in that time, he says, oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Right? So the, the same thing is happening here where it's, oh, look, I, I want these words to be engraved, the word of the Lord to be engraved in rock forever. And that's what he, do, he does. Right? So we've engraved it into the rock there. Uh, also, the tablets of God, um, the, the Ten Commandments, they were engraved into rock, into stone uh, by, by the hand of God. And then when they were broken uh, again by the hand of Moses. But, so going back to the, the VDMA, why is it in that configuration? What do you think? Could, could we have just done it VDMA? You know, uh, you know um, vertically or horizontally VDMA? Why, do, why is it in this format? What do you think? Okay, there's a cross there. In fact, this is a Lutheran symbol. So the Lutherans made that symbol itself. In 1522, there was uh, a man by the name of Frederick the Wise, and he ordered this slogan, the word of the Lord endures forever, um, to be printed, in, in a sense. What was happening in the time of the Reformation is that there was the Roman Catholic Church saying, well, you need uh, uh, the word of God and tradition, or the church fathers to then interpret and understand this. And then Luther said, no, we have Scripture alone, and I'm going to stick to Scripture alone, so on and so forth. And then everybody started to oppose this, and then the Lutherans said, well, you can oppose it, but the word of the Lord is going to endure forever. So you kill me, you're just killing a man, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And then the next guy dies, and he dies, and he dies, but the word remains every time. The, so, so that was then the motto of the Lutherans, that the Lutherans said, this is what we're going to go by, that this word will stand against the entire papacy and will inflict so much damage against the papacy and all of these things that no army could do, only the word of God, and it has. It's, it's a beautiful thing. So uh, Frederick the Wise then said, okay, take this and condense it, put it in a way so that we can mark ourselves and say that we're Lutheran. They didn't have the name Lutheran yet. They were slandered and called Lutherans. Um, they were called Protestants because they protested. Uh, they were, uh, Luther wanted the name Christian or Evangelicals, which is the name of the, uh, the gospel, the ones who believe in the gospel. So we were the first Evangelicals. Uh, but Lutheran was a, a slanderous term to say, well, you don't follow Jesus or the Bible, you follow this guy, Luther. So he never wanted, he, one, he never wanted to start another church, and he, uh, he never wanted it to be called Lutheran. Nevertheless, at the time, before these names stuck, 
they said, we need a way to identify ourselves and say that I'm Lutheran, without saying Lutheran, uh, and I'm not one of the papists. So what did they do? Uh, Frederick uh, had this symbol in that very way, a cross and VDMA on it, sewn on the, uh, all of his court, and what they did is they put it on the right arm of all of their uniforms. So the right shoulder, they put VDMA there. And that was a symbol to say, I'm with those who believe in scripture. Um, uh, Later in 1531, the Lutheran princes, they gathered themselves together and formed a small Caldic League, which I preached on this last Reformation. Um, Yeah, last Reformation. And it was for the sake of uh, guarding themselves and identifying themselves against the, the Catholic emperor. And then this slogan became the very uh, motto of the Lutherans and the Small Caldic League, which, uh, which, fought for, um, which fought for the truth. So they would take this and they would put this on all, all their different objects. So they had, I don't know, swords or shields, and they would stamp that on there, and they put it everywhere. So this was their logo, in a sense. Uh, so that's what's going on with the, the lectern. So the lectern is where the word of God is read. Uh, we've engraved this into the stone like Job longed for, and like the Lord did in the commandments. Uh, it's built on the four pillars of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that's what's read from, from there. Okay, any questions on that? Okay, now let's go to... hmm. We'll talk about the pulpit, and then we'll get to the altar. Let's do that. So, the pulpit, what do you... Sorry, yeah, the pulpit, what do you see? You see a cross and, you know, four circles uh, coming out of this. Um, and then you have six panels on this side, or three on this side, three on the other side, six, seven, eight, and then nine. So nine panels all around. Um, and you have the arches, so the arches on each of those panels pointing upward. Okay, uh, first of all, the material itself, you see that this is, pr- this is the second heaviest item in the entire sanctuary when it comes to the liturgical stuff. First is the altar, but second is the pulpit. Third is the baptismal font, and the fourth is the lectern. Uh, but this is huge, right? And it's elevated in a sense, and um, uh, the, the point is to show the permanency of it. Oh, by the way, the reason it's permanent like that, one is so you don't move it, and it's also pretty expensive too. It's probably one of the most expensive things apart from the altar uh, of the, on this level. Um, that means, you know, if I take a call or I die or something, uh, the next pastor, you have to tell him he has to preach from the pulpit. Uh, you say, we spent way too much money for you to just walk around here. You got to go there. So you're not allowed to. <laughs> so, you have, so you have, I mean, but this is the point. Um, the, the, the pulpits were kind of built in the shape of a ship or the front part of a boat. And that's kind of what you see you're kind of entering in. Right? If, if you could walk around and see this, you'll see it, it looks kind of like a boat, like this, and you walk in, and it's the very front. And if you completed it, you'd have like a big canoe or something. All right, why? Oh, uh, the materials are cast concrete, so it's, 
it's stone mixed in with kind of cement, concrete, and acrylic to, to make the final look. Um, to make it out of marble, solid stone would be incredibly, incredibly expensive. But um, this is our first fruit here. Uh, why, why is the pulpit shaped that way? Kind of, you go into it. So remember when Jesus was, um, he's teaching the crowds, and then he tells Peter, uh, set the boat up a little bit, and he steps into the boat, and he starts to preach to them from there. So he turned that boat into a pulpit of a sort. Uh, this, is, this is the point, and this is why pulpits were traditionally made this way, instead of like a podium. They were made as, as a boat, because the Lord then preached in this way, and so we follow suit in this very same way. Um, right, is the sermon efficacious if a guy walks around? Sure, yes, because it's the Word of God. Is, the, is baptism efficacious if it's in plastic and there's no electric, and it's a music stand? Yes, of course. But we are confessing something when we do this, when we build it in this way. So, it's, it's a confession to say, we. It's a permanent sort of thing, and we're taking after the, the uh, we're taking after our Lord who preached in this in this very way. He didn't have a pulpit, but he turned a boat into a pulpit if he could, and he did. Okay. Uh, the other thing is that you see a cross on it. Um, let me see. Okay. Yeah, you see you see the cross there. Uh, what's different about that cross? It's all equal. Yeah, that, so all the sides are equal. And then you see the circles around it. So you have two, we have two different t- kinds of crosses. We have this cross where it's uneven, and then we have this cross. So which is it? Well, this is called a Latin cross, and that is kind of historically what the cross would look like. And then you have the cross that's equal on all sides, and that was known as the Greek cross. Um, they're built differently, and one is to be empty. You don't see a Greek cross with Christ on it. That they don't do that. Uh, only the Latin crosses would have Christ on it. Well, the point of this was was this: is that this cross, the Latin cross, is a symbol of uh, Christ being crucified, and it was a historical statement. This is the shape of it. But the Greek cross was made later by the church. And it was a symbol uh, to show the work of the church and the word through the church as opposed to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Right? It's implicit here in, in this. But really what this is supposed to show is all the four equal parts are pointing north, south, east, and west like a compass. So that the word of the Lord is to spread to all places. To the left, to the right, forward, backward. And it's accentuated even by the circles here, so that you see the, the, word, the, the word of the Lord expanding, right, in that very way. In fact, on the hymnal, if you have the hymnal, the very front cover, that's what they're depicting there. So our, our hymnals have a Greek cross on them. Yeah. Uh, so they have a Greek cross in gold, and then you have little boxes around it, and that's supposed to symbolize the growth of the church. So the, the word going out. I think there's an explanation in here as well. Um, yeah, here it is. Uh, about the cover on page 9, in Roman numeral 9, and in the introduction. 
It says, the most prominent feature of the cover design is the cross. So everything kind of gets lost in the burgundy except for this gold cross. The dark innermost portion of the cross is a reminder of the darkness of Good Friday when our Lord humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The prominent gold leaf cross is a reminder of the resurrection of our Lord. God raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and hope are in God. The eight embossed squares surrounding the cross remind us of Christ's resurrection on Sunday. So the eight, again, the eighth day. And the inauguration of a new creation through our baptism into the death and resurrection of Christ. Taken as a whole, the cross design gives the impression of ongoing expansion. Even as the gospel continues to be proclaimed until the end of time. In Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Uh, And then to the left of the cross, you see the means of grace through which the gospel goes forth into our lives and to all the world. From top to bottom are an open Bible, that is the word of God, a shell with drops of water. uh, And there's three drops of water under that shell, uh, symbolizing the Trinity. Um, Communion vessels with grains of wheat and fruit of the vine, that is the Lord's Supper. On the back cover, you have the Holy Trinity is pictured in the form of the hand of God, a cross, and a dove. Uh, on, on the back, engraved there. But so the point is, is that there's there's the ongoing expansion of the of the the church, and that's what. So this is on the pulpit for that reason. That the the way the church grows is through the preaching of the word. So as this word is preached, the more it's preached from the pulpit, well, then also this work of the church grows in this way and it grows throughout the world. Right? And that this is something to be preached to all nations, to all people equally. Right? So there's, that's the equal cross, and it's expanding. Um, okay, any questions on that? All right. We'll end here soon. Uh, we have also the altar, finally. So you have the three steps, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit leading up. Uh, also, it's the highest point in the church, in, in the sanctuary, is where the altar is. And it's elevated uh, to, to that degree. You have four pillars as well there uh, for the four evangelists, uh, the four living creatures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the, the very, at the very bottom you have the three steps leading up to it, but the material itself and the weight of it is one statement in and of itself. Again, that it's immovable and that this is the heaviest thing in here. Um, this is two and a half tons. So it's around 5,000 pounds. And I explained this before how the very top part alone where the Lord's Supper sits is 2,000 pounds. And so they had a, they had a, a machine uh, that lifts about 2,000 pounds and a, you know, several men, about eight guys, lifting it up inch by inch, putting a board down until they could get it that height and to set it into place. Right? So very, very heavy. By the way, that's about the, uh, about the weight of the stone that's rolled in front of the tomb in, uh, in, in, in the New Testament times. So when you close the, uh, when you close the, what is it, the, the tomb, it would have a, a stone about five to 6,000 pounds. And this is why the women say, you know, as they're on their way, who's gonna roll away the stone for us? Uh, we didn't think of this. We didn't think that far ahead. Uh, so it's a very heavy thing. Also, it, you had to fight gravity to 
sort of pulled it out and then rolled it up a little bit. Because the only way they put it in place is they took out the stop and the whole stone would shut and it was there. So um, anyway, that's kind of a reminder of that, that the, the weight of it. What you don't see from your angle, what I get to see, is on top of it there are five crosses. So there's a cross on the, uh, each of the corners and there's a cross right in the middle engraved in there. What, why? No, Jeff can't. No, you, you helped me do this. You can't. You know all the answers. <laughs> Who, what, what do you guys think? So the, the reason for that is uh, symbolic of the five wounds of Christ. So remember we talked about this. So the hands and the feet and the side in the middle. And so those five crosses are a symbol of that. That this is, uh, this altar is about the sacrifice of the one who had these five wounds in this way. The, the other thieves didn't have that. Their legs were broken. They have four wounds. But this one has five. There's something unique about that. So that, that's a symbol there, that what we see and have on the altar is the very thing that was on the cross through those, uh, those five things, through those five wounds. Uh, also, the altar linen, uh, not this one, but when we get one, uh, the altar linen will have that as well. There'll be five crosses on it that line, line with that. Uh, as a reminder of the the linen that wrapped the wounds of Christ when, when he was taken off of the cross. Okay, a couple things. Uh, in, in the very front, what do you see? Yes, so you see uh, Greek letters. These are Latin, verba, verbum domini manet in eternum, and then you have Greek, uh, and, and Greek here, alpha and omega, and then Greek here, uh, chi and rho. So the X is actually first here, it's chi, and then the, the P looking thing is rho. Those are the first two letters, it's a CH and an R sound. Uh, the first two letters of Christ, Christos. And that's what's put there on the, on, on the face of the altar. Um, also you see it's in, there's a, it's in the shape of an arch, right, kind of pointing up to, uh, up to the cross as well. So, you have these Greek letters, uh, Chi and Rho, and it's a symbol actually dating back to the time of Constantine, who was the Holy Roman Emperor. We talked about this briefly last time, how Christianity was illegal, and then what happened was it became legal under Constantine, and people have arguments as to whether it was a genuine conversion or he's just doing this for votes. All right, go have coffee and then discuss it. But the bottom line is that it became legal under Constantine. And that means the Christians didn't have to hide anymore. They didn't have to go into homes. So finally, they could come out and they can start building sanctuaries. Right? There's this big movement nowadays of home churches or house churches and trying to restore this. But Christianity is legal. We don't need to do that. We, we don't have to do that. Why are we following the lead of those who are persecuted? And, no, rather, Christianity is legal. We can do this, I mean, to a degree, at least for now it is. We can gather together and we build things. And this is where the forms of the churches started to come from. So the arches and they start to separate things. Well, at the same time, the symbols start to come about. And this is the earliest, one of the earliest symbols, apart from the cross. Um, one of the earliest symbols of the Christians was the Cairo. And this, this uh, distinguished 
uh, Christians from the pagans in this way. So it's coming from this. So the, the symbols date back to Constantine. He had a dream before an important battle. This is the story. I don't know. You take, take it or leave it. But uh, he had a dream before this big battle. He was instructed to write the sign. In this dream, he saw in the clouds this symbol, the Cairo. And then in his dream, he was instructed to write this symbol on all of the shields of the soldiers. And so they took their shields and they put the, the P and the X, what will we say, the, the Cairo in front of them. And, um, and, and that was apparently his conversion. Uh, take it or leave it. But that's what the story is. So anyway, that's where that idea is coming from. And this is where we have uh, the, the symbol of Christ. And this caught on in the church, and they would put this on their Bibles, they would put this on their uh, um, vestments uh, of the priests, and they would follow suit with this and, and all that. By the way, uh, remember when everybody was freaking out about Xmas? Let's say Merry Xmas. Okay, well that's not something really to freak out about as Christians. That's what it's coming from. Uh, yeah, the Xmas wasn't a way to get Christ out of Christmas. It was just a kind of a shorthand way, X, uh, Christ, and that's, that's the heart of it. Um, so it wasn't saying this is a blank <laughs> statement or we're crossing him out. It's just uh, a shorthand for Christ himself. Um, okay, any questions on that? Looks like you put a lot of thought into it. Yes, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Makes it back to the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's right. I mean, the, the point is, you have one chance to do this one way, and uh, you, you really can't undo it. So the way it looks is the way it's going to look for a very, very long time. Um, and the, we put thought into it because, because um, it's worth our thoughts, right? It, it's worth taking time to think through. And yes, we were outside for... Seven, six, seven weeks, uh, we had a foldable table and a cloth. Why did we do that? Because we had no option. <laughs> we, we couldn't do anything else. We, did, we, we found whatever we could, and we did it. And, and th- nothing would keep us away from, from the Word of God. So we did that. Uh, now we're not in that situation, and so we can put the thought into it and do those sort of things. Um, one, one more thing, by the way, the... the the candles on the altar. So those are, you'll notice, when are they lit? Not just the time in the day, but for what services? Sorry? Yes, divine services. And on Wednesdays, they're not lit. Why? It's not a divine service? <laughs> okay. No, uh, why is that? Why, why is why is it only during the divine service? Sorry? Lord's Supper? Yes? Uh, why? Why the Lord's Supper? Why not eight candles? Why not 57? Why two candles? It's, it's a sign of the two natures of Christ. It's a reminder of the two natures of Christ. And so we, we light both of those whenever we have the Lord's Supper to, as a confession that he is both fully God and fully man. So in the creed, when we say this, uh, a God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, who for us men and for our, our salvation 
came down from heaven, so on and so forth, and was made man. So it is, he is fully God, completely, truly, 100%, and yet he is also fully man to the point that he could die in this way. So that, that is what the confession is of those candles. Right? Um, okay, we'll go ahead and end there, unless there are any questions. But um, all of these sort of things are to kind of tie together and to show you that there, there is thought behind this. And because of that, we'll talk about our conduct Um, Not next Sunday, but on Palm Sunday. We'll talk about what this means for us. Uh, There's one item missing here, and that's the communion rail. And that's not because we don't want it, but because it's not ready yet. So it's being worked on, and then I'll tell you about the symbolism of that. Why we we have the communion rail. But uh, what what the meaning of it is. But on top, uh, uh, or besides that, uh, the next time we'll talk about the conduct and then the reverence and piety that we ought to have in the sanctuary and what that means. So, all right.